You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and it's a very special episode. I could have saved this one for number 200 or something like that, but no, I recorded it only two days ago and uh, I want to bung it out as soon as possible. This was an extraordinarily uh, funny and fascinating interview. Uh, all of uh, all of the things we like here on uh, the Comedian's Comedian Podcast Please welcome to the show, Jimmy Carr. So we last saw each other, we think, in uh, Montreal. Uh, just for laughs, yeah. We're the, laughs. the greatest comedy festival in the world, I think. Because You're if you go to, there. I didn't realise. Well, I do it every year. I mean, and I love Just for Laughs because it's that, it is the best comedy festival because in Edinburgh you can have a bad one. And you can't in Montreal because it's by invitation. So everyone there is already having a great time. But it doesn't matter how good your Edinburgh is, and my best was probably 2002, sort of the Perrier nomination, that show at the Pleasance. It was a, it was a really good... Oh, no, the show at the Gilded Bloom was, was really, really good, and I had a great time. But then I had friends that were having a nightmare, and it always takes the edge off. It doesn't matter how good a time you're having, you're sort of walking around going, brilliant, I've written a show, it's really working, and I'm finding an audience for this, and it's... I think I might be able to do this as my job. Oh, this is amazing. And then you bump into someone and they go... Yeah, I might have to sell my car. I think that's the reason the free fringe exists today is because promoters put people in debt. In you know, when I was kind of around, so you know, sort of ten, fifteen years ago, people doing sort of Edinburgh shows were coming away from it with these enormous debts, and they were spending a fortune on PR for what was essentially a local gig. You know, it was an Edinburgh gig at the fringe, which should have been you know, a fiver to get in yes. and no one loses anything and you're up there for the month and it maybe costs you a few quid to be there. But I think the Free Fringe really kind of, uh, it was, it, it just, it had to happen because people were, were losing money. And, and ultimately what Edinburgh was about was about sort of being discovered or finding your audience. Do you know what they're doing this year? The, it's been, I've been waiting to see what the bigger venues would do about the Free Fringe. And one of the tactics now is to take a Free Fringe venue and say to the, uh, like, so the, one of the big venues takes it over, and then they say to the acts, hey, if you give me a £4,000 deposit, you can do a free fringe show in this venue and uh, collect money in a, in a hat afterwards. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, that's, remind me. that's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, because you, if you're a big venue, I'm not, I'm not saying to be fair to the big venues, but presumably they've been looking at the free fringe happening and going, oh, hang on, this is changing everything. 
don't they need to just cut the ticket price? Because the thing that I, when I used to go to Edinburgh, when I was kind of, when I first did it, I remember first going up with Rubbernecker with Steve Merchant and Ricky Gervais and Robin Ince. I was going to ask really you about fun, that. I sort of went up the year before, oh no, two years before, I went up to the comedy competitions and the Daily Mail, Open Mic and the, the Gilded Balloon, So You Think You're Funny, all of that stuff. And then I went up with Ricky and Steve and Robin and we did a show at the Cafe Royale. It's very sort of specific, um, you know, Edinburgh. You know what, if you're listening to this, you know exactly where I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, it, it, you know, it was, it was a really sort of fun thing being up there, but it felt like it was, you could just, you could put on a show, it wasn't a disaster if people didn't come. It was, it was just fun. And now it feels, I don't know. There wasn't, so there wasn't pressure on you at the time with Rubbernecker. Did you put pressure on yourself in that well, you environment? You wanted it to be really good. You wanted it to be the best. And then the next year, sort of going up and doing your first solo show. But it felt very, it didn't feel like there was a, it wasn't a crowded market particularly. Yeah. You could kind of get your head around it pretty easily, what was going on. And the, you know, promotion was pretty easy. And Those, how did you end up doing that four-hander with those three other specific people? I don't know. I think we'd done a couple of previews. We'd done the Hen and Chickens in sort of from January that year. We'd done a couple of gigs there. I'd written on his show Meet Ricky Gervais a little bit because I knew Ian Morris and Damon Beasley who were sort of working on it. And so Kent came in and did a couple of days writing on that, no more than that. And, uh, and then we all sort of became friends. And then we sort of did, you know, said, well, we don't want to go and do a solo Edinburgh show. None of us felt sort of ready for that. But all felt like, well, we could do sort of 15 minutes and, you know, pot on an hour. That'd be something, wouldn't it? Be quite fun. And so we, we you know, I don't know, it was good. It was, you know, it was a really good show as well. Do you remember, who was best on that bill? I think Steve was the best on that bill. Uh, Ricky was really good. He did sort of, his character Derek, and he did some sort of straight stand-up, and he did Derek as a stand-up, uh, sort of in two separate bits. And they were both magnificent. They were both really funny. But Steve's bit was incredible, where he just sort of came on as a delusional comic who was huge in the West Country. Okay. And did, did this whole kind of, just such a well-thought-out character bit. It was just brilliant. Did you ever keep any recordings of that? Have you ever been able to revisit it? Did you ever, like, tape no, any I don't, of those shows? I don't think anyone taped any of those shows. I don't <laughs> think we thought it would be a matter of interest, like, you know, a, a curio later on. Because it is funny looking back at, like, if you... I know you're in the Netflix show, which we'll, we'll talk about. You mentioned Nick Helm, and I know you were at... Oh, uh, I, I, I remember going to see Nick first in about... It's got to be maybe seven, eight years ago now. Yeah, he was in the, the Tron, gold, was it? Yeah. In the Tron, yeah. In the Tron, which was an extraordinary show. I mean, it's a, it is a wonderful thing about Edinburgh where you go up there and you find, you know, five new acts um, in, in a year and you sort of go, oh, they're mine. You know, and you, you go and you watch them and it's like a guarded, wonderful thing if you go and you watch them on their first panel show or they're on Have I Got News For You sort of years later and go, yeah, that guy. I saw him in that tiny venue and I really feel... It kind of feels like... It really reminds me of being a teenager and being into indie bands and sort of, you know, when they sort of have a bit of success, you'd sort of go, oh, yeah, yeah, I spotted them early. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a lovely thing. But, uh, sorry, getting back to ticket price in Edinburgh, I think the, the thing that Edinburgh venues have got wrong is that they've gone, oh, it's, you know, 15 quid or 16 quid for a ticket. I used to go up there and see eight shows in a day. Mm. It just wouldn't be feasible, like, you know, kind of, you know, just out of being a student going up to Edinburgh and seeing that many shows. It feels like it should be a lower point and people taking a bit of a chance on it. I think people are willing to give up an hour but if you're seeing five shows in a day, and that's why you have to sort of... I think there's, there's always kind of a balance in Edinburgh where you want to have some acts that are... I've always seen myself very much, over well, the last sort of six, seven years, as being a gateway drug in Edinburgh. I'm the marijuana. OK. Yes, we so talked about go, this when yeah. I saw you in Edinburgh last. But if you, you... Go to, if you go to Edinburgh, right, and let's say you're a punter and you've never really been to comedy much before, yeah. so we'll go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, it's just overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming. And, and my friend Kevin went last year for the first time and sort of went, it's just all a bit too much. So you pick three people you've seen on 
shows before, and you say, right, I'm going to go and see them, and then you take a chance on, you know, two shows uh, that you think might be good because someone's recommended them or good reviews, and then you just want as a wild card of just that, well, I'll go and see that, let's see. But I think that's the way it's always been. You've always had your kind of, oh, I know who he is, I've heard him on yes. Radio 4, he's very good, and then you've got your acts that you kind of go, well, let's see. You were saying when we, when we chatted last, we, uh, we had a, a brief chat in the street two Edinburgh's ago, I think, and you were saying that you were doing shows outside of town because you felt like it wasn't right for you to be doing the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah, I think the inference was that it's sort of not fair for you to turn up and, and just get a huge amount of comedy fans to come and see you when you don't really need Edinburgh anymore. So you were saying that you were doing shows outside of town and then you'd come in and see shows and support the festival. Yeah, I think I would still do Edinburgh. If I had a brand new show, I mean, I'm not going up this year because I'm doing a best of show and it feels really inappropriate just to go and knock out the hits in Edinburgh. It doesn't feel like that's what Edinburgh's about. Okay. Um, but I think if I was doing a new show, I'd be very happy. I mean, I like it when big acts go and I think Sarah Millican did it last year where she went and worked out new material in a tiny venue in Edinburgh. That seems absolutely appropriate and a lovely treat for the people that got those tickets. Mm-hmm. And I bet the people that went to see that went to see three other things kind of yeah. with that. It's almost like afterglow. If when you see a great show, you can sort of make it through a couple of bad shows afterwards. Yes. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a nice thing. It's a very special place, Edinburgh. Some comics go up to Edinburgh and focus on doing their shows and they, you know, they sleep in late and then they get up and go to the gym and then they go out and knock out their show and then they go and get hammered and they go back home. You are definitely someone, I mean, because I am as well, I've sat in a lot of audiences with you, <laughs> you know, with, yeah. your, with your very distinctive laugh. You are it is, easy, it is annoying. easy yeah. to know that um, you're there. No, I, I go you and see go a lot of stuff, stuff. But I think that the stand, that's the reason I like Just for Laughs as well. I see everything. So yeah. it's, it's the way that you meet people and the way that you, um, you know, that it's quite a lonely life being a stand-up sometimes in terms of you go and you do a show and you come back on your own. I don't have a support when I'm on tour. I just do two hours. So you're, you're out on your own. And that thing of like meeting other people that are in your business that do the same job as you and seeing how they do it it's kind of delightful and, and it's very in, inspiring as well when you see a sort of brilliant routine you sort of go oh right they kind of it's a totally different angle or when you see someone show and they're doing a very different style of comedy someone's doing yes. an hour of uh whimsy or, or or observational or something that i'm i'm not great at you can see it, you're kind of blown away the grass is always green i love it when i go and see a show and someone does an hour with three stories yes oh god that must be well, because you'd like to do that. Oh, I sort of look at it and go, that must be so easy. Come on. <laughs> well, I've had to write get... 300 jokes. Yeah, yeah, because you are under pressure Not to really. keep I mean... delivering the stuff that you deliver. But is there an element of that whereby you, you must see, uh, there is a kind of one of the vogues in comedy over the last 10 years is you get a story which has basically got one joke and then you feather around it for 10 minutes. You must see, you know, if you see an act do an Edinburgh show with three stories... For you, that's, you know, if you, you would need to compress all of the jokes in that and you'd probably get five minutes out of it. Yeah, I'm, I've kind of... Well, I like the idea. I like the style of comedy that I do. I don't think you choose the style of comedy that you do. I think it chooses you. I mean, unless you're really cynical and you want to be an actor, which I think a few people are probably guilty of. Mm-hmm. But that thing, of it just it, that's your sense of humour. Those are the jokes that you can write. That's what you come up with. That's what makes you laugh. And for me, it was always that very uh, short-form, Emo Phillips, Stephen Wright kind of one-liner stuff was what I loved. And I loved the idea. I remember, I remember seeing a, a, a John Maloney at the Comedy Store. Um, guys, I mean, it's got to be 15 years ago now, 16 years ago, right when I started, seeing him at the Comedy Store. And he came out and he went, I'll stop with some jokes. And just did like 10 one-liners, boom, 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 off the bat, and then told a longer story. And I remember sort of thinking, I'd like to do a show where it's just that first three minutes, that first opening salvo of bang, 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 and it never lets up. It never, and that's part of the reason to do this best of tour, the idea of just 
you know, dropping bombs for two hours, just like one liner after one liner, all killer, no filler. That's, it, it feels to me, because, you know, sometimes in a show you can find yourself as an audience member kind of going, right now I see where, I see where this is going. Oh, yeah. we, could, we could hurry up a little bit, couldn't we? There is a bit of a twinkle in your eye there when you describe dropping bombs. And I'm wondering whether that twinkle is because you are, you're enjoying how incongruous it sounds to talk about it in that kind of rap language, as a lot of white male middle-class stand-ups are fond of doing. Well, it, or- is, that, it is that thing, though, where you, you're aware of what you're doing as a, as a stand-up. You're aware that you're getting a certain reaction for a joke. And outside of this podcast, podcast, you, you don't want to talk about killing or, or, or you know, or destroying or, or you know, sure. any, any of that crazy language. But that's what you're aiming to do. That's what you're yes. going out trying to do, to get an audience to get to that stage where they're a little bit giddy with laughter. Yes. Where they're, uh, you, you know, the endorphin. I like, I like to think of myself as a drug dealer, but the drug that I'm dealing <laughs> if, if only is... the, audience, the podcast audience could see the house we're currently sitting in yeah they it would could probably be yeah. <laughs> Scarface but no you know the idea that you're, you're kind of you're you're a drug dealer you're releasing endorphins the drugs are already on the people that you're selling them to but they can't get hold of them without your special words it's like a magic spell you say these words in this order and they giggle and then they feel happy. And it's not just a laugh. It's like that only really comes when people, you know, that sustained laughter and that yes. rhythm of laughter as well. The idea that you're kind of, you're, you're kind of, it's a, you know, a, that one, two punch every minute. So it's interesting just to continue for a moment, that analogy of the drug dealer, a drug dealer is very powerful. And I think you on stage are one of the most powerful comedians to watch. I don't mean in terms of like, uh, you know, you're, I don't mean your jokes are powerful in the sense, of course, they're funny, but I think you're powerful in that you seem to really take pleasure in making people laugh despite themselves. That thing of, like, you know a joke's good. Absolutely by that. I mean, I'm obsessed by the um, the cognitive dissonance, the idea that you can make people laugh and be disappointed in themselves for laughing at the same time. Yes. Or be disgusted and laugh at the same time. And as long as the laugh comes first, even if it's just half a second before, you're, you're golden. Because that's the real them. I like the idea that laughter is, there's no, I don't know if people consider this at all, but you don't choose what you laugh at. You never choose what you laugh at. It chooses you. you, you laughter, is, it, it's a part of you. It's a reflex. And so you laugh straight away, and then immediately you see hands going up to faces and an intake of breath and, a, and, and people kind of shocked that they laughed at that thing. And then it's, it's kind of a joyful, giddy sort of, I don't know, for me it's very much anchored in kind of teenage years of kind of laughing, you know, inappropriately. Like, you know, yes. the laughter at a funeral, the laughter in the, in the classroom when you know you shouldn't be, should be concentrating. The idea of the kind of, that transgressive laugh. And is that, is that a more satisfying laugh for you to win from an audience if it's transgressive? If, if you've made them laugh at something that they probably are slightly ashamed I, of laughing I, I at? D- I don't know. Actually, these days, you know what? Probably not, because I, I'm pretty good at that. That's, my, that's what I'm famous for. Yep. I can do that all day. Mm-hmm. The thing that I really like is making people laugh hard with a very clean joke I can do on The Tonight Show. Okay. Okay. For me, that's and that's changed over the course of your career. I think so. Yeah. I think the. I think I started reasonably kind of slightly cleaner, and then I kind of. I. I I mean, I do very rude jokes, and I love them. I I find that that's where the biggest laughs are for me, personally. Is is, is that what I'm talking about? Because it's satis. There's satisfaction in in making them laugh despite themselves. 
No, no. I just think uh, that's you know, it's my sense of humour. That's okay. where I, you know, I wouldn't want to do a Freudian analysis of my routine. But those are the talking about the the like edgy, everyone else has. <laughs> yeah, the edgy transgressive stuff is where the, that's where the tension is, and there's a lot of tension. Then you release that. Yes. But actually, as a matter of professional pride, I love it when I can write a clean joke that works, and I can do the Royal Variety Show. Because, I mean, it's very difficult when, they, you know, you're going through, let's say, the Netflix special and you're doing promo in the state. I was doing promo last week, so doing The Tonight Show in America. Uh, I yes. do 18 clean jokes. Yes. I mean, just a nightmare. Just yeah, a nightmare okay. of going, well, that's sort of clean. I mean, it hasn't got any swear words in it, but it's sort of about something rude. But I think, can we get away with that? Yeah, yeah, okay. And do you fine. have to submit all of those jokes yeah. to do for the Tonight yeah, 100%, Show? Yeah, 100%, yeah. And then have a weird conversation about it, about how, well, that's, so, that's okay. I think I'm, the trans- I'm inferring anal sex, or I'm I think the, yeah. I think the transgender <laughs> community would be okay with that. I don't think it's hurtful. I think, you know, so you really have to explain it. Um, it's quite a nice discipline. But I think if I had to work clean, I just, I think I'd now have, I'd maybe be doing my first Edinburgh Hour this year. Yes. Because it's much more difficult to write that stuff. Yes. So what's your... What, so uh, I've got such admiration for people that work absolutely clean. You just yes. think, well, that's extraordinary. Yeah, Brian Regan, for example. Yeah. Doing, I mean, just the fact that you can... Yeah. Or Milton. Seeing Milton Jones do uh, an hour of one-liners that you can bring children to. They're not aimed at children, but you can bring children to them because you know there's not going to be any swears. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Is it, are you a fan of that sort of... Uh... Yeah, no, I, I mean, I love that. I think it's, you know, what's for, well, it, it's not something that I would aspire to doing, but I really like it. I really like the fact that it's such a... I mean, sort of, people talk about comedy like it's sort of one thing. And I think that's often what leads you down kind of a, a, a weird kind of cul-de-sac of people talking about what does your comedy mean? You go, no, no, just an entertainer. No, yeah. no, I'm not, not trying to change anyone's mind about anything. I don't have any agenda. There's no, there's no real politics in my act. It's no, I'm not t- trying to go, right, okay, this is the reason the Labour leader ought to be like this. Mm-hmm. It's just jokes. And does that... People it, do get a bit over... I mean, I'm not sure on this podcast, but people do get a little <laughs> bit kind of over-analytical about the, oh, right, okay, so why are you telling those jokes? Or what's, the, what's the meaning sure. behind that? You go, no, I'm just trying to... I'm making a living. Tell, tell, I'm a jester. Yes. And people get quite sort of... I think they try and go the other way in interviews and sort of go... Well, you know, what I was thinking about that, and I was actually making a joke about feminism when I said that. I just thought it was funny. There is is something to be said. I have, in researching this uh, interview, I remember reading uh, your, I forget which, it was an interview in in a newspaper that I saw online, where you were, a couple of times, you've refused to apologise for jokes. And you've said, I'm sorry if people are offended, but... It's just a joke. And there is something quite refreshing about not about seeing someone not be drawn into an obviously bullshit apology. I think it's from Sarah Silverman had it. I think Sarah made a joke on, if I remember correctly, The Tonight Show, but it could, I think it was when Conan was doing it. It might have been on Conan, made some joke about something and then apologised and then never heard the end of it. became a much bigger storm because she apologised. Mm. And I think she learned the lesson and I learned it from her. Just, no, don't. Just, you know, if you're offended, I'm sorry, you know, that you're, you know, a bad thing's happened. But I slightly, it's very rare that people are properly offended that were at the show. People tend yes. to be offended because they read the joke in the Daily Mail. Sure. They shouldn't have printed it. Yeah. That's them being irresponsible. You, yeah, you they've take it told out. that joke. Oh, they've so nicked and then told that joke, effectively, you mean. And taken it out of context and mistold it badly. Uh-huh. And you sort of think, well, actually, you know what? I told that joke after being up on stage for two hours. And there's, there's always jokes that you could tell at the end of a two-hour show that you couldn't tell at the beginning that you're, you're kind of building up a, a, a tolerance. Mm-hmm. So is there a certain amount of creative freedom or creative ease 
in having made the decision that you don't need to be saying anything. You're just a jester. If you decided that early on in your career, you went, I'm not going to ever rack my brains about what something means or what I'm saying. I'm just going to try and go directly to the funny. I think it is an easier road, isn't it? I think you know, being an entertainer is more... And it's also, it's like, you know, you're aware people... I mean, I think there are comics that we could both name that have had kids on the basis that this might be a show. <laughs> yeah, probably. And there are, you know, people that have just kind of go, well, I need something. Yes. Well, you, you know, I'm going to go and do something ridiculous now because I might get some material out of it. Okay, good luck with that. So this is Jimmy. Lots more stuff coming from Jimmy Carr uh, in the second part of this episode and indeed the second half of the interview, which I'm going to release next week. At the end of this episode, I'm going to play you a short trailer uh, of my own stuff. Free, gratis and without charge. Uh, a little two minutes, 45 clip of, uh, of me at the Wardrobe Theatre in Bristol. Uh, one of the tour dates that I've already done. We absolutely stuffed that. It was so exciting. We had something like 120 people there, uh, which was more than they've ever had there before. I may have mentioned that last week. I'm very proud of it. Basically, the tour's going great. And uh, I, I thank you to so many of you who have been coming out to see it and indeed dragging out friends and family uh, and sometimes partners who are already sick of the sound of my voice uh, so that we can all share the collective experience together of it being a bit weird seeing me uh, when you're so familiar with my voice in a slightly different context. Uh, so a little trailer after this uh, from Live at the Wardrobe uh, from this show. It's from the hour show that I'm doing uh, and I've got plenty of shows still coming up. There's The Cookie in Leicester coming up soon. Uh, I'm going to be at the Bicycle Shop in Norwich. I'm really looking forward to that really exciting artistic scene in Norwich. So I hope lots of people come out and support that. And then the tour almost concludes uh, after a few more shows uh, on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of April. I'm going to be at the Soho Theatre and you can get tickets for that show from SohoTheatre.com. I know there's a lot of you that listen in London or can get to London. Uh, I really want to... This, this show is selling fine in Soho, but I don't just want it to sell fine. I want it to absolutely fill up. So if you like what you hear at the end of the show, uh, then please, by all means, go to SohoTheatre.com and get a ticket for Stuart Goldsmith, inverted commas, an hour. So back to Jimmy in just a second. I just want to say a few individual thank yous uh, to people who've come to the tour, uh, not least Ren, uh, who is a, a super fan of this show, a concompletist, if you will. <laughs> I, I'd like to call you something else if you're, uh, if you're uh, someone who's listened to every single episode, but I literally get a suggestion a day saying, why not call them concompletists? Who am I to stand uh, in that kind of a tide? So Ren is someone who uh, has not only listened to every episode, but can quote them in depth. Uh, and actually, I busted him uh, sitting on the front row of my tour show in Canterbury, tweeting for the first five minutes, gently rebuked him from the stage in what I hope was a warm and funny way. Uh, and then it discovered afterwards when he and his friend, uh, the good doctor, uh, took a drink when I mentioned being a street performer during a bit. Uh, and I thought, oh, hang on, these guys, <laughs> I'm glad I was nice to them. Uh, these guys are super fans and blow me down. They were. Uh, and uh, Ren, it turned out, I found out after the show, was actually tweeting about how bewildering it was to be seeing me whilst listening to my voice, <laughs> with my voice that he was far more familiar with than my face. So, I mean, don't do that. You don't need to be uh, uh, tweeting and texting during the show, but by all means, come to it. And then uh, we've been having some really good fun uh, off the record Q&As during which I don't think I've ever said during one of those don't repeat anything I've said there, please. <laughs> Do me a favour. Don't secretly record them and bootleg them or even whisper about what's been going on. It's not that it's that salacious, but it is, it, it's a slightly different thing 
than uh, than broadcasting to tens of thousands of people as we are doing right now. So thank you to everyone that's donated to the show. You can do that as well if you'd like to make a, a one-off a PayPal donation of £10, £20, £50, or whatever else you think is appropriate. A pound a show, 50p a show, you do the maths, uh, and signal to me uh, using hard currency uh, how much you value this show. If, you, if you're a fan of the podcast, there has never been a better time to donate at comedianscomedian.com. Remember, you can also, if you prefer, set up a small recurring donation or even a large one through a variety of means. Ramesh Ranganathan is going to be the final live guest on the uh, the run that I'm doing uh, the season at Soho Theatre of the, the live podcasts. He's this coming Monday. There are probably, well, there are 12 tickets left, I think, as I say this. So uh, get in quick. I, that's that's going to be the first official uh, live ComCom sellout. I feel it in my bones. So uh, let's make that happen. And uh, so what else? Thanks for the... Uh, donations. I've sold a few t-shirts. There's not many left. If you're coming to the tour shows, you will know there are not many t-shirts left, guys. So uh, uh, you can order one of those from the website as well. What else must I tell you? Oh, very last thing. Um, the the ComCom Facebook group has absolutely exploded. We've got about, about 200 people there, and uh, 200 new people uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, after I pointed out, and I can't believe I hadn't made this clear before. Of course, that's a really good community resource. It's a good way you can contact me and often I post things on there like, hey, guys, I'm going to be interviewing Jimmy Carr. You've got 24 hours to submit all your questions. And as you'll hear in part two of this uh, this episode next week, uh, I managed to get in a few listener questions. So if you want to be able to and, and credited them as well. Thank you. I did my research. Um, so if you want to be able to interact more directly with the show and with my guests, uh, then by all means, join the Comedians Comedian Facebook group. Uh, if you are noodling around on the internet, why not take, I should pin this to the top of it actually, why not take that opportunity whilst you're sitting in front of a laptop to leave me a review on iTunes or an honest, an honest review, uh, you know, honest, sort of tending towards four or five stars. Let's, let's split the difference, call it five. Um, so you could do that. And, uh, and I have uh, seen a few people in front of my eyes do that thing of exasperatedly grabbing their mate's uh, iPhone or Android phone or whatever device they have and going, just give it here, taking them, downloading them a podcast app, subscribing to this show. So if you haven't done that yourself already, please do subscribe. And if you are with someone that you're to whom you are enthusing about the show, uh, then by all means, pinch their device, download an episode for them. Uh, and that's how we spread it further and further around the world. Let's get back to the fascinating and very funny Jimmy Carr. <laughs> When we were in Montreal, I saw two very different sides of you. And I'm talking about uh, a walk when we both went to see Tom Segura's show. Remember we saw oh, that's a really good show. It's yeah. a phenomenal show. Yeah, great and storytelling. And we, we walked across town and I got to briefly experience what it's like being Jimmy Carr when heads are turning either side as we're having this brisk walk through town. You're very famous, they're very well known there. And uh, we arrived at the Tom Segura gig, and there was a girl outside who is called Juliana. I think she was an intern at the festival, and she couldn't get into the show. And you said, "Oh, you're just coming with us," and she wandered in. And she was really made up and really sort of pleased. And I was like, "Oh my goodness, I've just seen Jimmy being kind secretly," which I yeah, thought was... that doesn't show me in a good light, does it? Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't at all. There's, the illusion shatters. So there's so there's that there's that half of you which is you know, the sort of person who likes to go and support comedy shows and goes to see comedy shows and cares and would, you know, would 
cross the street to piss on someone if they were on fire. You know, you're a... if I needed a pee, I <laughs> yeah, guess. Fine, I guess. I thought, oh look at yeah, look at Jimmy being kind. I've just spotted that. And then at the same time, I saw you uh, in the roast, the Roastmasters International. Oh yeah, that was, was fun. The kind of the opposite in terms of obviously it's a performative experience and it's just the most brutal. Like it's a competition to say the worst possible thing in the funniest way. Yeah, I mean, a lot of fun. And not only fun. did you win that, you <laughs> tore it apart. And so, I mean, there was so much fun for us watching the rest of the Britcom people who were there, me and Ed Gamble and, and Pipper Evans. We, were, we stood there watching from the balcony as Dave Chappelle and his crew, who were like, you know, I, I don't really see Dave Chappelle's crew, you know, where I grew up in Levington Spa. I mean, you grew up in Hounslow or Slough for comedy purposes, I believe. But you're... You, is, that, is that right, Hounslow? Yeah, Farnham Common. Fine, OK. So we... I don't interact with Dave Chappelle and the likes of his crew on a regular basis. And there was an enormous amount of pleasure to be had from seeing them going, Jimmy Carr, and just and brapping and losing their minds. It was a fun this, night. A couple, of, a couple of fun, fun nights. Well, weirdly, I mean, we did it like as a proper tournament. So yes. it was really the genius behind it is Jeff Ross, who's, yes. who's I think very well known for doing the comedy roasts uh, and does them phenomenally well. And he also did, he did a special last year, which is exceptional, where he goes into a prison. Oh, wow, I've not seen uh, that. Which is okay. great, which is on Comedy Central. So he goes into a prison and roasts a prison, oh uh, which is great, the guards God. and the prisoners. It's a brilliant special. It's just so him. Okay. Um, so the, the roast battles, the idea was that we would do, you know, be something like uh, 32 comedians down to one and, you know, a knockout competition. Yes, and we you're taking get... it in time to do, taking it in turn to do five one-liners. Yeah, so, well, that was the idea, but obviously it was then roasting the, the judges on that particular night or, you know, messing around with, with whoever it was. So it's quite easy to do, really. I mean, it's basically, basically heckle put-downs, basically kind of, you know, dissing the other person or trying to say something unpleasant. And it was, you know, surprisingly fun. I, I don't think there is another person who went through that process performatively who would have described it as quite easy to do. Everyone was... When it got down to... Was it Michael Broussard? Who was your the the final opponent? He kind of aced it against someone else, and you oh, took on yeah, this yeah. in the, the final. The Scooby Doo looking guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah the Scooby Doo looking he's guy. He's a very nice man. He was a very nice man, and he did. He was very careful when he set up his lines of attack. He was very careful to say, <laughs> "I mean, this is a mismatch. Obviously, <laughs> you're Jimmy Carr, and I'm some kind of you know, I'm a you know relative newbie." Um, but I did like I, I'm sure. I think I heard. I don't know for a fact, but I believe most people had been going round all day. Like other comics were coming to him and going, "Here's Jimmy's background. Here's what you need to say." I don't know yeah. whether he was seeking it out or whether it was being sort of. Thrust. No, there was a, there was a fair bit of that going on. Or he's going to say this, and you're going. To, yeah, it was really good. It was. It felt very festival. It really reminded me of the early days of Edinburgh, where there was a you know there'd be late and live back in the day. Was the, in the only old balloon? Yeah, the, yeah. The, the the late night gig where everyone was at that at one in the morning that was still up. Because Edinburgh was slightly smaller then and people didn't, you know, there weren't five alternates. It was like, all oh, right, you're at that gig or nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I used to love that. And I think that it had the same feel. Definitely. So did you, did you need to prepare anything for those roasts? Or are you now at a level where, given that so many of your tour shows have a section where you go, okay, heckle amnesty, let's go for it. That's part of what no, we come al- for. Always prepare. I mean, it's that thing where any show that I've ever done, I've always prepped and over-prepped for and still now. I mean, you sort of, you know, you turn up to a panel show, you know, turn up a little bit early, know what's going on, know the vague areas that we're going to be discussing. I mean, you know, there's, there's certain ones that you cannot prepare for, but even something like a QI, you can sort of do a little bit of research in your, in your head. You watch a couple of interesting documentaries beforehand or you read a couple of articles that you wouldn't ordinarily read okay. just to put you in that mind space. Um, 
or you watch some old episodes just to get a feel of the rhythm of the show but always i think you know if you don't prepare it's that thing of i mean you want to make it look as if you just turned up and did nothing but i think ultimately the work ethic is kind of what saves you i did that's fascinating to hear you say that because i had wondered whether now you are such a consummate heckle put down person that you could just walk in and just complete i mean i'm sure you could i think you could but you want to make it specific so it's more hurtful (laughs) <laughs> don't you surely absolutely surely you want to make it really really awful for them um yeah it was it was a lot of fun hopefully we're going to do it again this year i mean hopefully it'll become a thing yes and the first person to beat you is rightfully going to be carried shoulder high around the city i'm sure yes the um, just while we're on the subject because obviously you are known as uh, you know the king of dealing with heckles to the extent that you in your shows make a, a space for people to go right okay let, let's go for it do you particularly look forward to that part of a show during a two-hour show do you think i do right, yeah I mean, everything else is a script this is where i'm going to win well, it. not i mean it, i think on a good night it's kind of 80 90 percent of it is jokes that i've written and i'm performing those to the best of my abilities and yeah i did by know, saying 20, okay it's yeah. a script I didn't mean no, but, to. Then, <laughs> but then that thing of going the, the bits that aren't that the, the the bits where you're saying to an audience you know uh you know okay weirdest you know, sexual thing, whatever, sure. whatever that bit is that you're saying, or tell me a story. Those are my favourite bits because you haven't heard those before, and you kind of don't know where it's going to lead you. And often that's kind of the the little, uh, you know, why go and see a show live? Why not just wait for it to come out on Netflix and watch the special? Why be in the room? And it's because the, the the funniest bits are always the things that happen in the room that night. You really notice it on Twitter when people sort of tweet you after a yeah. show. It's all about the, oh, I wouldn't want it to be Dave this evening. Oh, he got a hard time or whatever. Yeah, you know, that little thing of the whatever, whatever the, the moment was that I think people have a real sense of that only happened tonight and that will never happen again. That's, a, sure. and that's why we went out to see it live. Okay. But the, specifically in terms of dealing with heckles, I just wanted to, I, I really enjoy, there's so many videos out there of, you know, Jimmy, you know, collections of Jimmy Carr destroys heckler, that kind of stuff. Um, what I'm really interested in, as I think we are all, the audience, is the moments when we're trying to work out whether you're on the back foot or not. When someone shouts something, there's a brilliant one. I, I've watched numerous compilations, so I can't sort of say which show it came from. But someone, someone heckles you, and then someone else goes, stop stalling. Because they've spotted that you've kind of, you've asked, you've done that comedian's thing of asking them to repeat it, gives right. you an extra second to deal with it, and someone goes, stop stalling. And, there's and then you have lo- to be extra devastating just to make Absolutely. it look like... Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, and and sure. obviously what you did was then you did, you know, you put him in a queue, you did that kind of thing, dealt with the first one, went back and dealt with the second. But just when he shouts, stop stalling, I just wondered if there's a moment when you go, oh, hello, this is new, and is there a bit of a friss on there that you go, yeah, I but, could lose? Yeah, but I think that losing's okay. I mean, it's, again, it's like that thing of saying, you know, I'm an entertainer, takes a lot of pressure off because you don't have to have a message. But also going, if, there's a, if, there's, if people are heckling, if it's super funny and devastating, great. Accept it, Everyone's, give them a round of applause. Yeah, if there's 2,000 people on a night out and we all had a massive laugh at my expense, great, fine. I mean, if you can't take it, you shouldn't really be giving it out. I, can't, I do subscribe to that a little bit. And I think, you know, when, if you get given a hard time, fine. And, and sometimes if it's really funny, I think it's kind of, it's lovely when they can yes. win. It's lovely when, it's lovely as well when, because, you know, for me, it's my job and I'm sort of doing it every night. But sometimes it's really lovely if you, if the local, you know, the guy who's kind of funny in their group shouts out and all his friends are kind of impressed. It's kind of, yeah. it's cool. Do you, do you, like that moment of someone shouts a thing, do you have like a, a sort of a system that you're doing, consciously or unconsciously? Do you have... Uh, an approach where you'll go, okay, 
get them to repeat it. Now, I could go... It's almost like we could imagine it's sort of like bullet time in the Matrix. You go, do I attack him on this basis? Do I... One of the things you do are really good at doing is you set the agenda. So if someone shouts something, if you don't have an immediate comeback, you tend, I've observed, you tend to take a step back and set the agenda by going, okay, everyone, what's happened here is this. Do you see what I mean? That's like a, yeah, a particular well, it, route. I suppose that it's, it's really, it's quite binary in terms of going, is this going to be a generic heckle put down, of, of which I've written many? Um, yeah. And then, or is this going to be a specific thing about them? And really that's about their next reaction. So if it's not about that, that specific thing, if, you're, if they've heckled and it's, you know, whatever it is, you know, I fucked your mum, whatever that thing is, if it's not going to be about that specific thing, then it's saying to them, okay, what's your name and what do you do? And if they're willing to play and they play easily and they give you a clear just answer quickly, then you can just deal with that. Yes. And that's, that tends to be more fun for me when people come yes. back specifically with, okay, my name's Dave and I work in IT, great, okay, we'll talk about that. But if they're kind of, they just heckled and then it goes silent, then it becomes more of a generic thing because they're not... Yes, it's no more of an aggressive heckle, isn't it? They're trying, to, they're trying to screw you over rather than trying to play. Yeah, and if it's, like, if it's not a dialogue, then it's, just, it's got to be just sort of a, a devastating put down is what it's got to be. It's more fun if they, if they join in, it's a bit of a conversation. And how, how many original uh, heckle put-downs do you think you've, do you have at your, at your disposal? Uh, there's probably maybe 30 in my head at any, at any point in time. Okay. Slightly different for different occasions. I mean, it's that thing of, there's probably 30 generic that I've written that I think, okay, yeah, that's, that'll work in this scenario. And then there are the, you know, the specific ones are always better. It's always sure, better if sure. it's about that person in that room that night. And you get points for speed as well. Yes. It's like doing topical jokes. Like if you do a joke about what, something that happened in the news today, you get twice as big a laugh as it deserves because people kind of reward speed. Yes, yes, okay. Someone, heck, there's another, from another compilation I saw online, there's a, a lovely moment where you're dealing with, you're fielding several heckles and someone shouts, respond without... What is it? They say something like respond without referring to sex, women, or violence. And there's, do you remember, do you remember that happening? I think, I think it, it might was on be, a DVD, perhaps. Yeah, I think there might be one in the Netflix special where someone oh, says, is that so, it? Yeah, someone, someone says respond, but don't mention, don't mention sex or his mum. Yes, that's it, go, that's okay. it, or his mum, yeah. And then so you immediately like, go, where are you from? And of course, that's the next one. But I did wonder, what if he'd said, and also not geography or my job? Yeah, Where would you go the, next? You know, the, because... the parameters of what exactly, you can and can't yeah. do. But I thought that's good because obviously there that must have been quite fun. <laughs> it looked like it was quite fun for you to feel that heckle because what that he- what that heckler is saying, probably without meaning to, is I love you and know exactly. You know, I'm I'm well versed enough in what you do that I want to make it more challenging. It's, you know what I mean? It didn't seem like an aggressive heckle so much as I've spotted your tricks, Mister Jimmy Carr. Do it. You know, answer this without using one of your regular tricks. Yeah, I think it was. I, I, yeah, I, I like to think he was um, he was being nice and trying to trying to challenge me, but possibly trying to fuck it up. Who yeah, knows? possibly. It's uh, yeah, I know. I mean, it's it's interesting the uh, the whole heckle phenomenon because I think it's so synonymous with shows being ruined. Even the term heckle, I almost feel like you need another term for it because there's such a big difference yeah. between I get anno- as annoyed by hecklers as anyone else. If someone shouts out just as I'm delivering a punchline and steps on it, I'm like well, I wrote that joke and all these people would have really enjoyed that joke and that's ruined now by someone talking over the top of it. If they don't know when to come in, it's, it's no good. Yes. And it's quite easy with me, feed line, punch line, laugh, 
and then there's there's clearly a space there where you could just yes. you could get in if you wanted to. Uh, do you think? Do you feel any responsibility? Do you think you're sort of helping perpetuate a climate where? You know, in, I mean, I've, I'm sure I did a show in Edinburgh years ago where I was in the audience and um, someone was heckling. The, I was splitting a two. I was splitting a, a, an hour with Jimmy McGee, so Jimmy was right. on stage. I was in the audience. Someone shouted something out. I shushed him, and the guy looked at me. He was a Scottish guy. He really bristled, and he was like, hey, "The lad's got to take his knocks." And you sort of go, "No, he doesn't. No, that's <laughs> your idea about what heckling is." Do you think that by having these, by kind of letting hecklers have a pop, you're perpetuating the idea that heckling is a thing? Um, yeah, yeah, probably. Am. I'm probably not helping. It's probably not helping. Uh, but it is a thing at my shows. It just isn't at everyone's shows. I think also, but audiences are quite bright. I think people people generally get it. The kind of comedy that I'm doing, I think, would lead you to to suspect I could join in here and he'd be fine. Yes. And you know, he doesn't seem that irritable, and he's just kind of getting on with it. I just think it's. I mean, it can ruin shows. I mean, um, who was telling me a story? Jim Jeffries was telling me a story about he did a very long routine. Which it's about a 10, 12-minute routine, and it has one punchline. And it is a devastatingly brilliant punchline. And he got heckled in Dublin doing, doing the show. He was 11 minutes into it, and someone heckled. And he just went, that's it, that's ruined. He ruined it. Good night. And just Whoa. walked off. Yeah. Stone cold Jim Jeffries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it can happen, I suppose. So is there... Is there a put-down, is there a particular heckle put-down that you, as a comedy fan, as well as a writer of comedy, wish that you'd written? Um, I don't think so, no. I don't think there's anything that I've seen that I would think, oh, wow, that's... Because I know you talked about Anthony, and I never know how to pronounce his surname. Is it Jeselnik or Jeselnik? Uh, Jeselnik. Jeselnik. Yeah, I like so... Anthony a lot. I don't know. I, don't, I haven't seen him do much with hecklers. I've seen him okay. sort of talk to a heckler, but not. he's not really from that school of... Also, I don't think people would heckle him because he doesn't come across as being... Yes. <laughs> you know, the nicest. He is the nicest. But he doesn't come across that way. I'm a huge fan of him. He's great. But I don't think that heckle put-down-wise, he's... As good as you? No, he just... He, he doesn't, <laughs> I, I don't think he does it very much. Sorry. <laughs> he doesn't really do it very much, yes, I don't okay. think. It's, it's not really that, that thing. I mean, it's... Uh, it's a, I don't, I'm just trying to think the best I've seen is probably Bill Burr in Philadelphia. Oh, yes. Where he got... He just goes on and on. Yeah, he basically hated the... The audience were awful. <laughs> incredible. And he, he wasn't going to get paid unless he did his time. So he just counts down his time. But as he's counting down, he's just telling the audience what terrible people they are. As, as he can, And so for the first five minutes, they're just hating it and shouting and barracking him. And then as it gets to kind of four minutes to go, they kind of turn around and go, this guy's... This guy's <laughs> There's something to be said for this, yeah. This guy's like, this guy's incredible. Yeah. yeah. You, I remember you, I wasn't at this gig, but uh, I remember it happening. I remember hearing about it. A friend of mine was watching the Malcolm Hardy benefit gig where you got booed on. Oh, yeah, that was quite fun, yeah. Well, it was a weird thing where I think people didn't think I knew Malcolm or something. Yeah, there was some sort of climate whereby people were angry that you were there because you didn't represent, or they didn't feel you represented the same spirit as Malcolm. That alternate world. Yeah, I got on very well with Malcolm. He was a lovely man. I remember I did my second ever gig uh, up the creek and, I mean, died. I mean, absolutely died. And there were five, maybe four or five guys. It might have been fewer, it might have been three guys. But there were uh, cab drivers, uh, black cab drivers in London, so in Greenwich. They used to go on a Sunday night to the Up the Creek Club and they were sort of, not professional hecklers, but they would take such pride in being devastating hecklers. So, I mean, sure. their standard heckle was, Malcolm, Malcolm. And that was for Malcolm to come and get rid yeah, of this gotcha. act. yeah. 
And I remember going up there and, and someone sort of did um, a, t- a terrible routine before and sort of did okay. I went up, did my little act, my five minutes that had gone very well at the Tut and Shive in Islington on a, on, a, on a Saturday and then sort of tried it up the creek on a Sunday and they were not having any of it. I mean, they did not like me and sort of came off stage and sort of slightly devastated, thinking, oh, maybe comedy isn't for me. And I remember Malcolm sort of going, there's a, there's a quiz machine for it, come on. And then playing on the quiz machine for ages yeah. and sort of going, oh, he seems to think I'm all right. So, yeah, yeah, we're all right, come back next week. Is that lovely kind of, no, no, you're okay, Ali, you know, you're doing the right thing, don't, don't worry about that, it's fine. That kind of baptism of fire. It was a very sweet man. Do you, do you have certain moments of, maybe moments like that, where you feel that it was like a, 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 a change in your learning? Like, I can think of certain gigs or certain experiences I had where I almost felt myself kind of click and go, oh, I've gone up a level. I understand this differently now. Um, I think it's quite a gradual process. I mean, I do feel like I'm better now than I was. But then I think that's true of most jobs. People get better. I mean, in most jobs, you get a promotion. And it's very clear that you're a more senior person now than, you know, you used to be a GP and now you're a consultant or whatever, whatever the equivalent is in your industry. And with comedy, not so much. You're still sort of playing the same rooms but I feel like I'm more myself now than I used to be. I feel like yes. I'm more myself on stage. I feel like I'm closer to who I am when I'm with my friends, trying to make them laugh on stage. It feels like it's more of a... Uh, it's more me. Uh, you know, you, I used to feel very uptight on stage, and now I feel quite relaxed. And what was that... What was the root of that uptightness? Was it fear? I think just, yeah, fear. You're, just, you're in front of, uh, you know, a thousand people on stage trying to make them laugh. It's quite an up... You know, who wouldn't be uptight? But you just kind of get used to it. I really like the analogy of kind of the, the sort of pilots. You know, if you talk to someone, oh, how long have you been doing comedy? And you, give, you always say, oh, you know, 15 years. But really, you should talk about hours on stage. Because mm. I think that really makes a difference. And also how match fit you are, I think, as a comic. If you do it regularly, like even if I haven't gigged for two weeks, I feel a little bit, oh, I'm not quite sure. I've got this. Like, I'll often do two shows in a night, and the second show is always so much easier. Okay. Even even then, you know, just the, the, the rhythm of it, you're just kind of in that space. And if you've kind of gigged seven times in a week, you're kind of, you're in that space. It's great. I want to come back to this idea of you feeling powerful on stage because more so than most other comics, I think, you project um, a particular image. You project a certain status. A lot of comics kind of seem to be the loser on stage and you couldn't be or yeah not, i think maybe not even the loser but if you if you look at someone like uh, frankie boyle do you know what i mean he, he you feel like no matter how powerful he is no matter how much status he has he's you sort of feel like this is he's a guy on the outside yeah okay i could see that yeah i mean i don't know whether it's i mean i always think it's kind of a status thing being a comic you're on stage and you're sort of telling the jokes and even if they're self-deprecating it feels like they're not, you know not really because you're the one joking. I think with mine, it's very clear that it's all a joke. Yes. I think from the audience point of view, I imagine when you're watching me, you're thinking, oh, and there's another joke, and there's another joke. And, and for a, you never think for a moment, oh, there's a true story. Yes. I mean, you, kind of, you willingly suspend disbelief, but you don't really think it's a real thing. And you know that it's... I mean, I suppose the way that jokes work, it's, um, it's two stories, isn't it? And, the, the, you know, the, the setup sets up one story uh, and it forces you into making an assumption which turns out to be erroneous in the second. It's the sudden revelation of a previously concealed fact. And the idea that you're doing that 300 times in a row, well, I think 
most people are pretty intelligent in the audience and they'd be able to put that together after two or three jokes. Yeah. Oh, right, this is happening again. Yeah. And no yeah. one goes, no, no, no one after the setup goes, bullshit, yeah. bullshit. No, that's not, it's not going to be what we think it is. No, yeah. no, no. No, you're deliberately misleading us. This is bullshit. No, <laughs> you know, because they, they're enjoying the experience of being fooled time yes. and time again. The extraordinary thing is really that people don't tire of, it's such a pleasurable thing being sort of, tricked like that continually tricked yeah and and linguistically just the the power of that language just you're you're constantly pulling the 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 rug from people's feet i suppose that's why shows kind of build a little bit in terms of content towards getting a little bit ruder or edgier yes because i I wonder if you have to up the stakes you want to come out strong but you want to kind of save your strongest for the end you want to kind of because I think I think you do sort of feel the thing, thing where audiences kind of there's a there's a very natural lull after forty minutes and how you handle that and how you control that as a as a comedian is quite interesting. I think particularly with the sort of jokes that you do, which as you said, you're not telling anything true about your life. You know, if you say, "So I'm married," or well, I'm a bad example, but you well, there's um, lots of jokes where I'm married and and I've got a wife, and then there's jokes where I have a girlfriend, girlfriend. Yeah. and sometimes they're like two jokes apart. And no one ever goes, hang on a second, point of order. Well, occasionally people do. Sure. And you go, sure. yeah, the thing is, though, it's all made up. But when Don't panic. When you're constructing a show out of, say, 300 jokes, is that, is that right, do you think, for a, for a show, for an hour, for a two-hour show? You might, you might get away with 200 in, in a show, but, I mean, you're probably whittling down from 1,000. Okay. And when you do that, do you need to watch out for certain similarities of rhythm or similarities of... Like, the, the particular it's, you know, trick the weird thing playing. is, I'll, I'll write a show and when I've got all the jokes kind of written, they'll be in a sort of a big document uh, and it'll probably be about a thousand jokes and I'll, I'll see what... I'll, t- I'll just test it in front of audiences. I know immediately I can look at a joke that I've written and go, yeah, that's first half, first quarter of an hour. Okay. And I'll look at another joke and go, yeah, that'll be in the encore. that'll be be beginning of the second half i know instinctively kind of where they go in the show for me on what terms i really don't know i I mean it's it's very i don't really analyze it i just kind of look at it and go i've got a feel for no that would go there and i probably i yeah that could be a one-liner about sex in the first half but actually i'll probably talk about that more in depth in the second half so it becomes a longer bit that go in the second half and there's a weird kind of i don't know what i mean i bet I bet that would work if I put them in other places, but it feels like that's my kind of my method or almost my um, uh, not OCD, but my uh, my kind of uh, superstition about that. Yeah, oh, that goes there and that goes there and that would work like that. So there's a certain, although the shows are all different, there's a certain there's patterns that emerge and you become very aware of what people. So after 40 minutes, when there's a natural lull, people laugh at one-liners for about 40 minutes. And then they're a little bit tired. So I break it up before that happens. I break it up by doing something with visuals yes. in a show, which I really enjoy. That kind of idea of you're, you're making people laugh sort of twice. You're making them laugh at the one-liner and then the visual representation and taking them with, the, with you on a little journey in your mind. So it's often jokes that are quite difficult to make work in stand-up. Mm-hmm. They're a slightly different... Um, I was going to say texture, but they're, they're like a different feel. Sometimes I write something that's a bit more sort of um, thoughtful. And actually, it works much better, even if you just walk across the stage and sit down. The audience immediately go, right, something new, reset, yes, yes. start again, boom. And then after 40 minutes, there'll often be a bit of chat with an audience. So it might be a bit of material that involves me going, right, who here's had bad sex? Or who here's... And then you a little bit of chat with a couple of people in the audience. And then you get the punchline to that bit. And then you're into the one-liners again. But it, it sort of breaks the, the flow. Okay. And so you're sort of doing it in little sort of segments. 
Do you think there are a, a, a finite number of types of joke? Or like, like some jokes, for example, might be a, a shift in perspective where you're talking about uh, your girlfriend and then the punchline is that actually that's separate to the wishes of your wife. So we're, that's a thing whereby... Yeah, pullback cons- reveal. Yeah, so you've yeah. concealed information. Or there's a thing where you... Ch- and within pullback and reveal, there's, there's, there's kind of different types of them, aren't there? Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, and then people... And I was on the bus and people were upset. Sure. sure. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, I mean, very identifiable different types of, of joke that you can sort of go, oh, well, that's one of those. I think the best ones, when you're writing them, you tend, to, you tend to write them backwards. And then if you were to look at your set afterwards, you go, oh, yeah, that's sort of a pullback and reveal. Yes. I do. But I don't think you sit down and go, oh, I'll do a pullback no, and reveal sure. here. I don't sure. think anyone writes them forwards. No, it goes, right, this morning I'll write pullback reveal jokes and then scatter them around the set. So it's, a, it's an odd thing to... I think you can understand it looking back at it, but actually when you're, when you're doing it in writing. I mean, I'm very lucky that I don't really rely on writing on stage. I test jokes on stage, mm-hmm. but I don't really rely on being in that space to write. So when you are writing, what does it look like? Are you sitting at, is this your desk in the that background? Is, that is there? a desk over there. Very rarely sit and write at that. I'll tend to write on my phone in, I'll just, or any thought that I think, oh, that might be funny, or that's a lovely turn of phrase, I'll write down. So if I'm chatting to friends and someone says something, oh, that's, a, oh, that's interesting. Okay, and I'll write that down and then that will become something. Okay, and the process by which it becomes something, when do you go back to those notes and what's the environment there? Are you pacing around the room looking at the notes? Are you sitting down? Are you Late night, drives, train journeys, just when I'm out and about. Okay, and that's when the actual writing happens because you turn the thing over in your head and yeah, try and, and unpack it. and then it. actually when you're doing a show, it tends to be, you know, so if I've got a preview show, you might then sit for four hours and edit 10 pages of stuff and say right and that's really the tricky bit that's when you're allowed to kind of go well that's good and that's bad okay i try not to get in the way you know that disney had a thing uh disney had three rooms so he'd have like a creative room where he'd go right everything in this room is fabulous and then he would have a um a sort of management room where he'd talk about how making those ideas work and and what would work and what wouldn't work and then he would have kind of a critic room where would go, well, that's just a terrible idea. Okay. So, and he would really separate out, and I try and keep that... So I try and keep a file of jokes where it's just you write down everything, and you try not to be too critical. You try just to write it down. Okay. Because I think sometimes you can overthink it early on and go, oh, that's just a silly joke. It feels too obvious. It's just a pun. Don't worry about it. Leave it. And I like to write everything down and go, well... So you who- don't make the decision, don't worry about it. Yeah, I try to write every, you know, so if you wake up at three in the morning and you think, and there's a great bit by Mitch Hedberg where he said, you know, I'm a comedian and spend my life waking up at three in the morning trying to convince myself that isn't <laughs> funny enough. Worth. <laughs> it's not worth getting up and writing down, which I can really relate to. I think yeah. you spend your life kind of writing things down, looking the next day and going, that's rubbish. Yes. But I think you have to write down all the rubbish to get to the good stuff. Yes. And, and you, so someone was you're talking in... about it recently. Some, uh, was it, yeah, it was a singer was, I was chatting to uh, recently. It was talking about um, uh, never, never say no to the muse. It's quite a good phrase, I thought. Sort of uh, always write down. If something occurs to you just yet, yeah, you've just got to listen. Because who knows where they come from? It just sort of occurred to you, and you sort of, all right, write that down. And so you're, you're completely separating the critical process from the creative process. I, I mean, I'm not, but I'm trying to. I'm aspiring to do sure. that, yeah. Okay. So one of your... I, I noticed on, and I'm not sure how many years apart they were, you have two different jokes which have the same punchline. And I, I tried to do a thing years ago when, when I started. When I was, I had, I had aspirations of greatness. I tried to do, <laughs> I tried to do three setups with the same punchline. 
Oh, great. What, how far did you get with that? Can you tell us what they were? I think it was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was the um, Korean delicacies. Uh, they're the dog's bollocks. And then something about, oh, you know, I've got a friend and she, she says the way to drive a man wild with the desire is to nibble on his earlobes for hours and hours. I think it's bollocks. And it was, it was trying okay. to do sort of the, the punchline bollocks, were trying to get that, like, so to set up the three jokes <laughs> and then to just have the punchline for all three bollocks. I just thought it might be a fun thing to do, but you couldn't do it because actually the, the audience lives so in the moment. Yes. You can't go, oh, remember that? That's going to be handy in a second. And remember that? They, you're going to need that. Yes. So you can do callbacks, but you can't quite... You are limited by how fast they can keep up with you. And I suppose as someone who turns over a thousand jokes a year, maybe or more, you know, the sort of pre-editing process, you have got to be in the, the rhythm of... You're going to have a very quick mind as a comedian. I think anyone do, performing comedy, we're able to see where a joke's going. If we're watching someone on stage, we're nodding, going, yeah, brilliant. And we love to be surprised by a joke. So comedians don't tend to laugh at other comedians so much. Well, I think that's kind of the highest compliment you can play, pay another comedian, is, you know, you hear a brilliant joke, and your first reaction isn't laughter. It's, oh, I should have thought yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's right there, yeah. right in front of me. I've, yeah. I've noticed that a million times. Damn it. Yes. It's great. So, so the speed at which you process information, do you need to deliberately slow that down? Is that sometimes why jokes don't work? Because you assume too much speed on the part of the audience? Well, I suppose that's... Uh, I'm not saying in every case. But, no, but I think Seinfeld's analogy is probably the best the for clicks. explaining that. Yeah, the yeah. idea that you're sort of jumping across a ravine and... If it's, if it's just a step, it's not exciting. And if, it's, if they fall down the ravine, you haven't gotten to the other side. You know, and it's, it's getting them from you know, feed line to punchline, And they have to be able to follow your logic. I mean, partly that's the reason why I'll use visuals in the act. So it's, it's those jokes would probably work on their own. But actually with the visual, you're really helping people across. Yes. It's always yes. That, that's the rope bridge that brings them across. And sometimes a joke needs another sentence in the middle just to kind of to get them... It's, a, it's a okay. sort of a halfway point of okay. going, okay, they need something else. But yeah, I think that's often the way. Like, it's quite interesting when, you, when you're testing new material to kind of be looking at, um, to be looking at, oh, well, why didn't that work? That seems like a really funny idea. And then you realise that you haven't communicated, you know, fundamentally haven't communicated what you were thinking to an audience. Yes. So the, the, the example I thought of, you had a joke about uh, looking into the sea and thinking about sea levels rising. Oh, yeah, seeing okay. a guy throwing stones into the sea and thinking, well, that's not helping. Yeah. If anything, you're making it worse. And then you've also got a joke about, some years later, a joke about seeing a woman in her kitchen during the, the floods. floods. Crying. Well, that's not helping. Yeah. In fact, if anything, it's making it worse. Yeah. Well, I like that. It's weird. The other, the other thing that I really notice about my act is there's always a joke that involves she was livid. Yeah, really. There's, al- <laughs> yeah, there's always weird. there's always a livid. She was livid, and I never, you, I've never really used the word livid outside of one-liners. Yes, okay. But it's a very, it's a really nice little kind of touchstone. Of it's a, a really funny word. So much about the word livid is good because it the the jeopardy's huge because it's so angry. Yeah, and it's also unusual. So it's quite an incongruous word because no one uses it in conversation. It's nice. It's really nice. It's interesting that thing about the the rising sea levels because I looked at that joke again for this sort of best of show and thought, man, I wasn't quite sure it was right. So often you you won't put something that's that similar in terms of the the punchline in in a show because that you know the flooding one will probably make it in but the throwing stones won't because it was that was actually uh, one of the uh, ones that involved having a picture because yes, it, okay. it actually that the flooding one was easier to relate to a woman crying a guy throwing stones and the sea level rising because yes. there was a stone in the water it's it's another 
it, it, the, the logic there isn't quite it as good. It's slightly too far apart. Yeah, a, a little bit. But with a picture, it was a really fun joke, and I liked the fact it was quite sort of quite clever on sort of sea levels rising. Yes. So the but the, so that example and in the example of of livid, you must spot patterns of yours. Do you try and break those patterns when you spot them? Do you go, I'm doing the same thing, or do you go? I'm pretty relaxed about it. I think I, I, I would <laughs> I wouldn't be thinking, oh no, I've I've sort of been there before, and it's I'm trying to break new ground. I think often the analogy with comedy and music is really sort of is really valid, and sometimes it just doesn't work. You know, it's often that thing with bands are often trying to create something new, and yes. I sort of I often just sort of look at them and go, what are you doing? Just make an, you know, if you're Oasis, make another Oasis record. That's fine. Yes. These bands trying to reinvent themselves with every record, you sort of go, that must be exhausting. Also, you're really good at that thing you just did. Just stick with that. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> do, you, do you have, though, oh, in, the, in the, to- the, the total of all of the jokes you've written in the last, what, 15, 20 years of your 15 career? 15 years, yeah. 15 years. So 1,000 a, a, thousand a year? I mean, maybe that many. I don't think quite that many. But and yeah, I'm not, maybe, you know, I'm not sort of... I'm, I, maybe, you're obviously not framing that as a boast, and I'm not, you know... I mean, maybe, maybe 300 per, per special. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot. 3,000 jokes at least. Okay. So those jokes, in, in them, do you ever feel like you've invented a new type of joke? Have you ever minted something and gone, oh, God, I don't think anyone's ever done that type of thing before? Yeah, I'm just, this is a super nerd question. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't think so. I think, I don't think so. I think it's like, it's, uh, the thing about comedy is you're standing on the shoulders of giants. It's that thing of like, I don't think any band would, would say, oh yeah, we've written this song and it is a totally new thing. I think the only person in our lifetime that could say that is, you know, it would be, you know, Brian Eno, you know, invented ambient. But even then, there's certain classical music before that you could have argued was sort of ambient so you always you're always kind of and the format of jokes is so ingrained in us and you're sort of i think you're tapping into a language that people have hardwired into their heads i mean if you think about why people joke it's quite interesting i think i mean for me i think it's the i was thinking of writing something about this i'm not sure whether it's it's too pretentious for you but the idea of what does <laughs> I what defy does, you to be too pretentious does, for this podcast? What does laughter do? It rewards two things. It rewards uh, ob- observing difference, and it rewards linguistic ability. And both of those th- things have a Darwinian advantage. So if you're, I mean, imagine the you know you're on the ten thousand years ago, you're on the savanna somewhere in in, uh, in Africa, and you spot a cheetah's tail. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the grass and you observe that oh that's different to the other thing and that's rewarded somehow with you know I, and the difference between the aha moment and the ha-ha moment it's not there's not much in it yes it's that that surprise followed by laughter it, and often you, you'll get nervous laughter and I think that's kind of where comedy comes from I think it's kind of the nervous laughter and it's a way of socially having that response and that endorphin release when you think of a clever linguistic way of communicating yes. or noticing something different. I think that's kind of, you know, it's, it, it's a way... Why would we be rewarded for that if it wasn't fundamental to our success? I want... Because actually, you know, it's, it's about re- conflict resolution. Is, you know, within groups of friends and things. Comedy is such an important part of that. Yes. Being able to laugh about something. Oh, we'll be able to laugh about this later. Yes. And actually, that laughing about it, that's you fixing it. That's you getting over it. I certainly did that in my own life. I know loads of comedians who have had some similar experience to this. In my uh, family life as a kid, I found very much like I was terrified of awkward silence. 
So I'd always be the person who would, who would prick it, who would say something such that everyone laughed and we all got on and it was fine. You know, I'm not so... Sort of... Well, there is a theory, and it's the only one for me that sort of rings true, is uh, most comics had a sick parent, either physically or emotionally sick, that needed cheering up. Yes. And so from an early age, you were, you know, trying to cheer things along. And I think... You know, maybe that's why there's more boys that go into comedy than than girls because men have, haven't got the emotional tools. Yes. So, like cheering things on, yeah, just maybe. go. Oh, okay, a joke. Will that help? I'll say yes. something fun rather than saying how are you and having an emotionally based conversation. Well, with yeah, the I mean, I love that that, that quote about you know, um, laughter is the shortest distance between two people. The idea that when you joke, what are you really doing? You're really sort of saying to another person, "I like you and I want you to like me." But men are very bad at saying, I really like you. Yeah. You're, really, you're a really nice guy. We should, we should spend more time together because I really like you and I want yeah. you to like me. I mean, even saying it now to you and looking at you, I know, it right? feels creepy, it's right? pretty eggy, yeah. Here's, <laughs> here's one for you. That's exactly the same thing. It's another way of saying that. There's no reason to tell a joke in the pub other than, all right, guys, you're my guys. I love you guys. Yeah. And I want you all to be happy. That's, that's what a joke is. And I think there's that way of, you know, cheering things along. I think in family environments, I think it's often, you know, a kid that really wants people to all, you know, as you say, get along or be happy or not to feel awkward. And it's the, it's the very opposite of awkward. It's yes. the very opposite of the, the boring, tense car journey to the funeral and someone makes a joke. And, it, and just for an instant, it's okay for a moment. <laughs> So that was Jimmy. Part two is coming soon uh, next week. This time next week, uh, you should be able to download that. Um, and thank you to Nathan for editing this. And thank you to Jimmy for having me over to his uh, luxury pad. Luxury isn't even the word. It's genuinely really seeing, seeing just how successful Jimmy Carr is in real terms, in cold, hard art. Um, <laughs> it's It's sort of it's slightly changed my perspective on how well I think I'm doing. I mean, I was, I feel like I've moved down several brackets of how well I thought a person could do. Um, so it's, it's taken me a good 36 hours to sort of recover from that. I'm still slightly reeling. Uh, more from Jimmy very soon. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off next week. Uh, and now, uh, thank you for listening to this bit. No waffle today. It'll be a waffle at the end of the next one, I'm sure. Um, but this is a little trailer recorded live a couple of weeks ago at the Bristol Wardrobe Theatre on Old Market. Uh, this is a tiny little snippet of the show that I'm currently touring. So if you like the sound of this, why not go to SohoTheatre.com for shows on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of April uh, or indeed ComediansComedian.com and search for the tour dates and find out where I'm going to be near you soon in Sutton, Mid Wales, in a secret location, uh, Norwich, Leicester, so on and so forth. Here's... Stu Goldsmith, here's me. I've got to intro myself. You never get to do this. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, halfway through the first 15 minutes of his show, Mr. Stu Goldsmith. You might see someone run to work. I don't know if you've ever seen that. You'll be, you'll be staggering to work, scuffing along at eight in the morning, going, God, I've made some terrible decisions in my life. And all of a sudden, you'll be buffeted out of the way by some bellend dressed head to toe in neoprene. <laughs> Looking like a ninja eel. Looking, looking, looking like a cyclist, but with no bike. Just the like that. As if they thought to themselves, zero friction, this'll be easy. And they always seem to have an iPhone on a silicon pouch on their upper arm. So I think it's so that they can make calls one word at a time. So they can go, yeah, me, smart, wanker. And it always, do you not think it 
always reminds me of they look like a security guard from space. Do you know what I mean? They, like the little ID thing. They're like, you're not coming in there with those hollow boots. <laughs> um, so they, that, the reason they have the, the, the iPhone, of course, is that they have an app called Map My Run. <laughs> Thank you. It should be called, it should be called Smug My Calories. Is what it should be called. <laughs> Gloat My Progress. Because what this app does is it uploads a map of their route to your Facebook page, right? So that all of your friends can go, why have you put that on Facebook? So that you can go, oh God, does that go on Facebook? I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't realise everyone would see what a great runner I am. No, I thought it was just for me. I thought it was private. I thought it was hidden. I thought it was engraved on stone tablets and cast into the ocean. But it's okay. Obviously, now we have a map of your route. Uh, we can lie in wait for you the following day and ambush you with some secateurs. <laughs> That's a very deliberate choice of weapon. Don't think for a minute that I've improvised that. <laughs> so, do you know what secateurs... Secateur, if, you, if you think you know what secateurs are, just briefly mime secateurs. In fact, those are shears. Idiot, 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 idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where you're from. But secateurs, a lot of you got it right. The little, the, someone is still persisting and going, no, it is that, it isn't that. <laughs> Secateurs are the one-handed ones, right? They're, they're wicked. They've got that little curved metal beak, right? They're vicious. And I've realised why they're such a scary weapon. It's because they have a safety switch, don't they? A little thumb slider that doesn't make them any more safe. Does it? Because if someone attacks you late at night, God forbid, in a dark alley using a gun and they go, give us all your money. We've seen the movies. We've seen James Bond, Jack Reacher. We know what we're supposed to do. They wave a gun at you. You go, mate, you've left the safety on. And they're momentarily distracted. You slap the gun out of their hand and you do that next snap thing and then they die immediately <laughs> for some reason I'm not quite sure that. but if they attack you with secateurs they go give us all your money and you go mate you've left the safety on I go it doesn't matter stab <laughs> it's problematic 